Welcome back to Balagan. I'm Kobe Cohen, joined by my dear friend Jeff Becker. What is going on in Israel? More than 1,500 rockets fired by Hamas and the Islamic Jihad in the last 48 hours. After Hamas promised to hurt Israel for banning access to Dome of the Rock for Muslims. Ramadan fest, the flag march on Jerusalem Day, the Sheikh Jarrah evacuation all came down to a climax. But what ignited the ongoing round of violence? What is happening in Israel and Gaza and why? That is what we are here to discuss today. So welcome back, Jeff. How are you doing? All right. You know, I, I knew I was going to come back on uh, to discuss Israel's ongoing formation of a new government. But, you know, I, I didn't know that, uh, unfortunately, how the circumstances would change so significantly. But, you know, let's let's dive right into what's going on. Ultimately, from what I see is that this is a conflict right now where three different fronts have opened up. You have Jerusalem with the Sheikh Jarrah eviction notice, which was passed down by the Israeli Supreme Court and attempted to be executed by the Israeli police, the eviction of eight Palestinian families of Sheikh Jarrah and the ongoing violence that resulted in Jerusalem as a result of that, but as a result of the annual Jerusalem Day March, which is where Israeli nationalists march towards the Kotel, usually through the Damascus Gate, which is the Arab neighborhood near the Kotel, to commemorate the 1967 victory and the recapture of Jerusalem. So we have the tensions of Jerusalem on one front. Then we also have what's opened up on the southern front, which is a massive barrage of rocket fire from Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which has warranted responses from the Israeli Defense Force. There's been a lot of strikes from the Israeli Air Force, but massive rocket barrage on Israeli cities as well. And then the third front, which I would argue is the most disturbing out of all of them, just because the third front is not something that has been seen in Israeli society on the magnitude that is being seen now. And that's the intercommunal violence between Jews and Arabs. In Israeli cities, in, you know, Israel proper, not the West Bank. We're talking about cities like Lod, Ramle, Haifa, Akko, Akko. Yeah. even in, towards the south, a lot of mixed uh, Jewish Arab cities. It's ultimately descended into utter chaos, as the mayor of Lod put it. They've lost control of the city. It's gangs of Jews and Arabs, you know, ganging up on each other, fighting each other. There have been reports of gunfights in the streets between Arab citizens of Israel and the Israeli police. So ultimately, it's these three fronts that we need to keep in mind as we discuss the ongoing tensions between um, Israelis and Palestinians. And I think it'd be most important to discuss what happened and what is what happening in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the focal point of everything going on right now. Yeah, so there was, it's a combination of things. You mentioned some of them, but I want to go to something that you haven't mentioned. So first thing, you know, we have uh, Abu Mazen, the president of the Palestinian Authority, and he declared that they're going to go and uh, have elections after 16 years. The last election uh, occurred in the Palestinian Authority was 2005. And if to remind the audience what happened, 
חמאס, surprisingly, took over Gaza right after the disengagement. By the way, I'm saying surprisingly, but I was cynical. Nobody was surprised that uh, Hamas took over Gaza. It's a discussion for another episode. But after Hamas took over Gaza, there was a big tension between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Hamas, for years, is, uh, you know, claiming and complaining against Abu Mazen that he doesn't really care about the Gaza Strip. Abu Mazen, on the other hand, is telling them, you guys are not playing by the rules and you do what you want, so how can I collaborate with you? And actually, for a long time, you can say that you had the Gaza Authority and the West Bank Authority, one led by Hamas and one led by the Fatah. And they were not collaborating until recent years. But what happened was that over the years, Abu Mazen was very collaborative with the Israelis. And that's something that even though the Israeli right wing doesn't like to say out loud, most of the, I would say, security that Israelis sensed until now, and the fact that we actually don't see an intifada now in the West Bank, and we see what's happening in Israel and in, in Gaza Street, but we don't have an intifada in the West Bank, is actually thanks to Abu Mazen and to the Palestinian uh, security forces who are keeping the West Bank quiet. But then Abu Mazen realized that if he's going to go for election in the West Bank, he may lose to Hamas as well. And it's not in Israel's interest, and it's not in Abu Mazen's interest. So he declared that he's canceling the elections. Hamas was pretty upset with that. And of course, they blamed Abu Mazen for collaborating with Israel, who told him you shouldn't go for an election. Second thing that we're having is the Ramadan fest. The Ramadan is a 40 days holiday, which in every day, the, the Muslims are festing from sunset to sundown. Yeah? No, yes. so sunrise to sunset. Yeah, sunrise to sunset. So this one, you know. <laughs> and what's happening is that Every year, it's a source of tension in Jerusalem because a lot of Muslims pray every, every evening. A lot of Muslims go to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. And what happened is the police decided to put blockades in different areas of the old city of Jerusalem and mainly to block the Damascus Gate. That's the main gate that goes into the old city. Uh, one of the three gates, actually, the old city actually has eight gates, but it's one of the three that has the most, how do you say it? Foot traffic. Pedestrians. Foot yes, traffic. Foot traffic, exactly. And the police actually put blockades and uh, it denied people's access to this area. On top of it, with the fact that they are fasting, it's hot, they're all upset, and you have almost 40% of unemployment in East Jerusalem among the young Arabs. So you get a lot of frustration, a lot of tension, and it caused a lot of clashes. Add to it two more things that happened, one last week and one this week. You were talking about Sheikh Jarrah. So Sheikh Jarrah, to make a long story short, it's all started in 1950 with a law that is called the Absentee's Property Law. It's a law that was written by the Israeli Knesset that literally said that if you left 
your property behind, if you are a Palestinian, you cannot demand it back, and if you are a Jew, you can demand it back. I mean, if you lost the property in the War of Independence, and what happened was, we all know that there was a big migration of Palestinians in 1948, because their leadership told them, oh, leave your houses, don't worry, we will win the war, and then you can come back. And they lost. We need to remember that. They lost. It happens in wars. One side wins, one side loses. And ever since, there is an ongoing clash between their demands to get property and actually what is happening in many places in East Jerusalem, you can see it in Silwan, you can see it in the old city itself, and in Sheikh Jarrah it, it grows that the settlement movement, the settlers movement is actually trying to occupy and buy properties and evacuate uh, the Palestinians who've been living there. So it caused a lot of tension because, you know, even if it was a Jewish property in the past, and now you have almost 30,000 uh, Palestinians living in Sheikh Jarrah, and they're trying, I would say, to poke an eye to the Palestinians. Let's call it this way. In, in, in America, you will say gentrification. They're trying to gentrify Sheikh Jarrah, but what's important to note is, you know, not gentrification really in the American context where you think of, you know, like all these coffee shops and cafes coming up. It's gentrification from right-wing Israeli yeah. settlers, religious it, Jews. Exactly. It doesn't involve uh, oatmeal latte. okay? It involves no. violence and a lot of superiority, by the yeah. way. I think it's also important to bring up um, that during these evictions, a lot of hard right Israeli politicians did show up in Sheikh Jarrah to make a statement. Exactly. I mean, we had Betzalel Smotrich and Itamar Bengvir. Those are the two big yes. ones. They ultimately represent something called, um, I think, neo-Kahanism is the best word to describe they it. They are the neo-Kahanists. Neo-Kahanism is basically the teachings of someone named Rabbi Meir Kahana, which is basically, Kobe, I think you could explain a little better than I can but just an extremely radical form of, it's like Jewish supremacy is probably yeah, the... We're going to have a special episode, by the way, about Meir Kahana. But technically, Meir Kahana, actually American Jew, he grew up in uh, Brooklyn and he founded JDL, the Jewish Defense uh, League. He came up with this idea after a lot of harassments uh, and anti-Semitic uh, activities against Jews in New York. And actually, some of his ideas were right. He said, you know what? I'm going to fight fire with fire. And he was able to bring the younger generation with him. A lot of uh, young Jews who said, you know what? We don't want to be victims anymore. We have the power and let's move forward. At one point, he made Aliyah to Israel. And he actually even ran uh, for the Knesset in 1984. And we discussed it in the past that unlike uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud was not only embracing his uh, students, you know, and brought Itamar Ben-Gvir and legitimized him, the Likud at that time, led by Yitzhak Shamir, was a hard right wing. We need to remember he was a hard right wing ideologist who didn't want to do anything, you know, with the Palestinians. He ignored their existence. But he said, I can't have somebody that is racist in the Knesset. And every time that Kahana was, you know, was putting a speech, everybody left the hall, you know, the main hall of the Knesset. 
but for Netanyahu, you know, it's not the ideology, it's the number of uh, fingers voting for him, so he let him in. Itamar Ben-Gvir is a provocative persona. He is the one that in 1995 was videoed with the symbol of the Cadillac of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. And he was actually saying it to the cameras, okay? Just like we got to the symbol of the car, we're going to get Rabin. And we need to remember that Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a Jewish assassin, okay, who supported the settlers and the hard right wing here. And by the way, Itamar Ben-Gvir never stood to trial. He's, by the way, a very intelligent guy. He did his uh, diploma in law. And he represented himself in many cases. And he's going on the borders, but he keeps getting away with that. He came to Sheikh Jarrah and he, he put a table over there and said, okay, that's my office in Sheikh Jarrah just to provoke the Palestinians. Okay, so ultimately, let's summarize Jerusalem because this does feed into the next front in this crisis. So... We had the Israeli Supreme Court decision to evict families from Sheikh Jarrah, and that ultimately represented this greater gentrification being pushed by the right-wing Israeli settler movement, which was physically on the ground during Ramadan in Sheikh Jarrah, yes. cheering on these evictions. You had right-wing Israeli politicians who were literally setting up their office on the street to make a statement, these neo-Kahanists. Who were there and you know mixing that with the israeli police's decision to limit gatherings on the temple mount as well as um shutting off damascus gate so now we need to bring the dessert for this you know where uh, the last uh, thing that happened every year israel celebrate jerusalem day one of the largest events is very controversial It's actually an initiative of Yeshivat Merkaz Arav, which is originally the students of uh, Arav Kuk, Rabbi Kuk, who's the founding father of the Messianic Zionism. What we know more as the settlers or the Kippot Srugot. And starting 1968, they started to uh, do a march. you know, to show that we have the sovereignty over East Jerusalem. But it kept on growing, and you can actually see it from the photos. You don't see any secular people in those marches. It's the religious it's all, nationalist camp. It's a nationalist camp. And it's also, they go through the old city. Honestly, it doesn't bring any unity into the business. It's provocative. And what happened last Monday... is that at the last minute, the police banned them from going through the Damascus gate, and they did allow them to go into the Kotel, while on the other hand, another poor decision of the police, they did allow the Muslims to go on top to the Dome of the Rock. And there were huge clashes between the police and the Muslims in Dome of the Rock. A couple of trees were burning, and actually, you can see the hatred between the two sides with the fact that the settlers were by the Kotel and they were all dancing and celebrating not only the liberation of Jerusalem, but also that, uh, you know, that maybe the Dome of the Rock will uh, burn finally and they can get rid of it. Then Hamas came into the picture because Muhammad Def, 
you know who Muhammad Def is? From Hamas, right? It's one of the largest terrorists of the Hamas. Israel tried to assassinate him, you know how many times? A lot. Five times. And they're saying that he's like, a, you know, a cat with nine souls. Yep. Okay. They tried to assassinate him five times. They killed, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, they killed his family and he's half blind, no hands, no legs, something like that. Nobody knows actually how exactly he survived, but he survived. And what he stated on Monday was unusual because he's usually underground. But he said that Jews are going to pay for what's happening in Jerusalem. Now, I don't think that Netanyahu intended it to happen, but it was a combination of too many sparks, you know, that were ignited. And eventually one of them caught fire. And the sad thing is that it didn't caught fire only in Gaza. It caught fire also in Israel because Israeli police not only banned the Muslims from East Jerusalem going into the Dome of the Rock, they actually stopped Israeli Muslim worshippers from getting to Jerusalem. And it got uh, people really upset. And that whole thing is very explosive because it's not just religious. It comes from religious, but what you see in Gaza and what you see also in Jerusalem, which is sad, it's really sad, but it's also a combination of the fact that people believe they have nothing to lose. They have nothing to lose, they will do whatever they need. And that's what's happening in Gaza. Hamas now wants to show that he is the savior of the Dome of the Rock. Everybody was telling Israel, listen, you're going too far. The Egyptians are friends from the Abraham Accords, you know, told Israel that we're going too far. But a lot of people are saying that Prime Minister Netanyahu is very tense because he may lose uh, power. And with his trials going on, he needed to warm things up. And I'm just saying, it's not something that is concrete, but it's one of the assumptions that, you know, he had the intentions to poke, but I don't think that he really intended to lose control. Yeah, no, it's interesting you brought that up because there were a lot of reports in the Israeli media saying that the alternative government of Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett was about one day away from being formed, which would actually use the support of Ra'am party of Mansour Abbas, which is the yes. southern branch of the Israeli Islamic movement. And they said, okay, you know, it seems like they're one day away from finalizing a deal. They're going to send it to the president. They're going to come back next week and form a government. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see Jerusalem erupt in protests. Then you have rockets fired in the Gaza Strip. And now you have intercommunal violence between Arabs and Jews. So it looks like, you know, what could have been a really good possibility for Jewish Arab coexistence politically, having for the first time in, oh, I don't know, like 30 years where an Arab party would help support the Israeli government, all of a sudden that seems like that went out the door. Netanyahu had the interest to split, you know, uh, this whole coalition of what they are trying to call uh, the change bloc has a really unstable base because the only thing that connects them together is actually the fact that they all want to replace Netanyahu. But besides of that, they don't see things eye to eye. Naftali Bennett is a hard right wing religious. Gidon Saar is a hard right wing secular. 
אביגדור ליברמן is a hard right wing ultra secular, אוקיי? גדעון סער will collaborate with the ultra orthodox, נפתלי בנט also, but אביגדור ליברמן will not collaborate with the ultra orthodox. But then you have labor and merits on the left, and you know, they're totally the opposite from ליברמן, סער ובנט, I mean, they're not religious, they're secular, but politically they are left wing, I mean, they support the peace process. And you have Yair Lapid, who is the biggest party in this block, who's a centrist and doesn't really stand for a whole lot anyways, so. Yeah, talking about it, when you're trying to look what did Israeli politicians said about the situation, only two politicians from the left actually went against what's happening, trying to set up an alternative. The first one is Merav Michaeli, who called actually for an inner peace in Israel. She wasn't talking about the Gaza Strip. But she was talking about the relations between Jews and Arabs. Listen, just tonight, we are recording on Wednesday evening. Just tonight, there were two lynches. One Jewish guy was lynched in Akko, and a Muslim Arab was lynched in Batyam. And it's horrible to see that. You know, coexistence is important in the state of Israel. Eventually, the Arabs are not going to go away, and we're not going to go away. So you can't just rip the society apart. You need to figure out a way to have a dialogue. So it was Merav Michaeli, it was Yair Golan of Meretz, and only today the Arab leaders started to speak. Mansour Abbas was actually trying to call to calm things down. saying, by the way, that we need to renew the negotiations to form a coalition. Ayman Uda, who was on one hand called, you know, to support his Palestinian brothers and all of that, but on the other hand also called, we need to calm things down. And actually the loudest voice came from Meretz, Isawi Fridge, who's an Arab member of the Knesset for Meretz. He said it clearly, both in Arabic and in Hebrew, that we're going to live together tomorrow as well. So we need to make sure that tomorrow will look better. I don't know how many people are going to listen to him. At the moment, you know, the blood is gushing, the adrenaline is gushing in the, the veins. I mean, I'm talking to family and friends even now. It's, we're recording at 9 p.m. Wednesday. It's 4 a.m. in Israel. I still get WhatsApp messages from people telling me that there was a siren in Tel Aviv, a siren in Arcelia. You know, yesterday you can see videos of what was happening. Yesterday it was more than a thousand rockets fired. One video actually showed it and it looked like a Star Wars scene. You know, it was so insane to see that. And I'm not even talking about Gaza because Gaza also looked like shit because it's a very narrow piece of land. And when Hamas is firing, you know, from the street, but the streets are only like... six feet, eight feet wide, then if uh, the IDF is attacking the launcher, most likely they're going to hurt the building as well. So ultimately, though, you know, it's the first time in about seven years or about seven years or so, you know, from the IDF and Hamas to get into another clash. I question how Hamas is able to get so many rockets and Missiles. I mean, there is no occupation of Gaza anymore because they withdrew in 2005. However, there it is. It depends how you look however, at it, by the however, way. However, there is a military embargo established by both Israel and Egypt. I think that's important to find. So, you know, in the Gaza Strip, while Israel is not physically present within the Gaza Strip, they do have full access to 
the border, the sea, the air. I mean, you know, they can't, if you're in Gaza, you're, you're kind of locked in because of this embargo. So I question how they're able to get all these, these missiles, because I mean, this rocket fire seems like a lot worse than it was in 2014. But at the same time, what really grabbed my attention more than anything is this intercommunal violence. I mean, you know, I know, as you stated earlier, a lot of Arab politicians have been, you know, begging for action to be taken on the rising domestic crime in a lot of different Arab cities. And, you know, just to see in the last couple of days that in cities like Lobby of Arab Israelis firing on the Israeli police with weapons, I mean, in hindsight, you would have loved to have done something about the crime rates in Arab cities beforehand, because you just have this hoarding of guns and arms that are now ultimately being used in what you can call it ethnic clashes between Jews and Arabs in Israeli cities. Yeah. Have you ever seen so, something like this before? You've lived in Israel, you know, for decades on decades. You're Israeli. You've been through the intifadas. You've served in combat. Have you ever seen something like this, though, with the intercommunal violence? Honestly, I haven't seen something like that. The closest thing was September 2000, after Barak came back from Camp David. But it was not close to what we see today. Actually, the surprise is that Jerusalem is more quiet than the rest of the state. There are a lot of clashes among Arab villages and in areas where you have uh, Arab populations within the cities. You know, just like with the ultra-Orthodox, the Arab society has, in a way, its autonomy. Just like the ultra-Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox have a lot of political power, so their autonomy is a bit different. But with the Arabs, they are the poorest society in Israel. They have a high rate of unemployment. They do send their kids to college, to Israeli universities. So they are more educated and they are, they are trying to find jobs. And actually, you can see that hospitals in Israel are full with Arab doctors and Arabs personnel in overall. And they are working hand in hand with their Jewish peers. But... It's the poorest society, and they are being discriminated in many ways. You know, they can't buy homes wherever they want. There are hard restrictions on uh, building and planning in Arab cities. If we'll go back to a city like Lod or Ramle, you can say that it was a bomb waiting to explode. The Arabs in those cities are living in poverty. They live in the old neighborhoods. Nobody was trying to, you know, build new homes and tell them, you know what, move to another uh, neighborhood. What we see in cities like Jaffa, same thing. Two weeks ago, there was a rabbi who was attacked in Yafo. But also, by the way, if you're going to check this rabbi, he belongs to the settlers movement and they opened up a yeshiva in the center of the Muslim area of Jaffa. And you need to ask yourself, why would they need to do that? I mean, they could have formed the yeshiva like 200 feet north in a more Jewish area. So if they live in poverty and there are big gaps, you know, you're reminding the mayor of uh, Lod, he banned the Arabs from a uh, building. He said that he's going to pay a thousand shekels to everyone who's going to snitch about uh, arms in the Arab society. But eventually, you know, being a populist is one thing. And executing a policy that works is a different thing, you know, and politicians are not being held accountable. So this guy, Mr. Ravivi, okay, or Raviv, I forgot his name, he didn't help to work out a coexistence in Lod. 
he was actually helping to pour some more gas in the fire. Nobody was surprised that they have so many weapons. Nobody was trying to disarm them. And by the way, speaking of that, the Arab leadership is talking about it in the last couple of years. It's not just Mansour Abbas, it's Ayman Ude, it's Ahmad Tibi. They all say, we need to take care of the violence in the Arab population. The police need to get in. They're backing up the police and they're telling the police, if you will join hands with us, let's eliminate the problem. Okay, they do want to put an end to it. The police didn't want to enter. So where do you see going from here? Because based on what I'm hearing is basically a lack of oversight from the major politicians mixed with just a poor handling of the situation overall by the police. I mean, poor handling in Jerusalem, poor handling in Lod, poor handling in Ramla, and then all this mixed with the constant rocket fire coming out of the Gaza Strip and the retaliations from the Israeli Air Force. So how much longer do you see this going on for? Do you think it's going to get worse? Do you think it'll it's get hard better? It's hard to focus. It's going to get worse before it's going to get better. Hamas already got his, uh, you know, victory pictures after he was able to put more than 50% of Israelis in, uh, in shelters for the last two days. But now the IDF will need to get a victory picture. And it's not going to end well. I mean, we're going to get more casualties. I believe that the IDF may need to enter ground forces into Gaza. And at one point, you know, you will have an international community intervene and they will come to negotiate between the sides, just like what happened seven years ago. Eventually, the change needs to come from the political sphere. I mean, Israel needs to decide what's its strategy, not what are the tactics that he's doing. So far, it works well for Prime Minister Netanyahu. He gave money to Hamas. And it kept the quiet in the Gaza Strip, but it's not going to last for long. I mean, Israel needs to choose. You know, you're talking about the disengagement and that Israel is not controlling Gaza. But technically, Israel is controlling, you know, the water, the gas and the electricity. If they want to set up a different policy, they may come with a solution saying to the international community, you know what? We are tired of the Gaza Strip. We're going to cut off the electricity, the water and the gas a year from now. Okay, it's your responsibility to make sure that they have infrastructure. We don't care anymore. Okay, then, by the way, Israel will have a lot more legitimacy to do things different. Because at the moment, you know, talking about David and Goliath, when we are holding the Gaza Strip by the neck, you know, and the Hamas telling them, okay, you'll have electricity, you won't have electricity. We are responsible for, you know, uh, what some people will say, crimes against humanity. Because if you're going to cut off the electricity to the Gaza Strip, you're blocking the hospitals. You know what I'm saying? You're going to cut off the water. You're drying them out. But if somebody else is responsible for that and you go to war, they're responsible for their own things. You know what I'm saying? You say that the Israeli political establishment's responsible for, you know, developing a strategy as opposed to just tactics. And maybe this have been in the Netanyahu administration only, but it's only about tactics. There really is no strategy. I mean, Netanyahu himself is a very risk adverse politician. I mean, you know, it kind of backfired in the last couple of days, but his main goal is ultimately staying in power. I mean, he hasn't developed any sort of strategy for dealing with what's probably one of the biggest issue for Israel today. I actually saw a joke today on Facebook. Uh, it was in Hebrew, so I'll translate it with my bad English. 
But technically, one of my friends was asking, let's say that you have a plumber that for 12 years is unable to take care of the different leaks in the system, okay? And every time you're calling him and he's telling you, oh, it's uh, the other plumber's fault, okay? It's the left-wing plumbers. They don't let me. It's the Supreme Court plumbers. They don't let me fix it. Would you keep this plumber or you will try to change him to somebody who can fix the plumbing? Netanyahu, his biggest master is politics. He is able to dissolve and eliminate a competition. He is a talented marketing persona. He's able to tell you, you know, oh, look, we're going to take care of something. And allow me to ask the following question. Two weeks ago, you had uh, 45 people died in Meron, in Mount Meron, after the Lag Baomer uh, ceremony over there. Nobody speaks about it, you know. He knows how to cover things up. But eventually, if we're talking, you know what, he's good working with cosmetics, okay, covering up the details. But at one point, you know, if you have a pimple and you're putting makeup on it, You can put up a makeup for one day, for two days. At one point, the pimple will still blow up. So it's not really that you took care of the pimple. You just cover things up. He's really talented on covering things up. But, you know, there is a saying in English, when shit hit the fence. You can only keep a lid on a boiling pot of water for so long before it just comes off. And honestly, I don't see a lot of change because, look, in the bottom line, just like Bibi wants to control, the Hamas wants to control Gaza. So both of them are going to seek for a victory photo. And, you know, the people will be the ones suffering, the people in Gaza and the people of Israel. And then we're going to go back to the starting point. We're going to have a little bit of quiet for some time. And by the way, you're talking about how did Hamas got so many arms? You know, the tunnel problem that was brought up in 2014 in a defensive edge It wasn't a new problem. It was something that the IDF knew about it, but it's hard to figure a way to fix it. Those tunnels are being dug really deep in the ground. We're talking about 100 feet sometimes, and that's a lot. And they bring a lot of weapons actually from the Egyptian side of the border, and they are able to manufacture it, you know, in small places. It's not that it's a high-tech rocket, okay? Those are very primitive rockets, but they still have the same effect. And there, there's a lot of them. And there is a lot of them, by there's the way. There's a lot of them. Have they killed more Israelis already than in 2014? Yeah, in the last in yeah. the last, in the la- days we have. Yeah, more Israelis have died in like these last two days of fighting than in like a month. Of no, no, in, in 2014. Oh, you're talking civilians. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in 2014, we had two people die. One of them was a three-year-old kid. And they were from the south. They lived in the south. Now we had a kid in Yahud, which is uh, almost 70 miles from Gaza. Their rockets are getting a longer range now. They are getting better of it. They are making more of it. And just to mention that it's also happening in the north. Even though Prime Minister Netanyahu is saying, oh, we are strong, you know, we're working against uh, Syria and Hezbollah. In Netanyahu's era, Hezbollah grew stronger and uh, more powerful than ever. And the numbers are talking that they have more than 100,000 rockets that they can shoot at us. So I hope we're not going to get to that day. But if both sides will need to clean their uh, arsenal, it's going to be painful for Israel as well. 
And I hope we're not going to get to that day. Because eventually we're going to win, but at what cost? Well, on that note, I think we summed up some of the points very well. So, you know, Kobe, thanks for having me on, obviously. Not the greatest of situations, but, um, you know, try and look at it the most objective way possible. So, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Let's uh, pray for better days in Israel and for peace and quiet. And we'll be back maybe next week with discussing uh, the change block coalition, if it will be formed. (laughs) Yep. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you guys for joining us again. See you at the next episode of Balagan. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.